The COVID-19 pandemic has been described as the biggest shakeup in the workplace since the Industrial Revolution. By utilizing technologies like video conferencing and messaging services, workers could do their job from anywhere in the world, disrupting our understanding of how management, careers, and lifestyles would look. But in a post-pandemic world, we can reevaluate our work relationship with these technologies. Are they helpful? Do they help everyone equally? And what does the future look like? Joining me today to tackle these questions are two communication scholars from the Annenberg community. Marlon Twyman II, Assistant Professor of Communications at USC Annenberg, and Casey S. Pierce, Assistant Professor at the University of Michigan, who received her Master's in Communication Management at USC. I'm your host, Sky Lee, and welcome to the Annenberg. <laughs> Thank you, Marlon, for being here today. Love it. Thanks for having me. We also have Casey Pierce here. Thank you, Casey. Nice to be here. Let's first dive into the research that prompted this episode. So let's start off with Marlon. A big part of your research was on this online platform called Kaggle. Um, So can you first start off by explaining what Kaggle is? So Kaggle is one of the most popular online communities and online resources is for data science, machine learning, and AI programming. And you've also mentioned in your study that it's like an online competition platform. Is that correct? Yes, yes, correct. So at the core of their origin story was this interface to have uh, organizations or companies post problems, give some data, and then have the community work on those uh, for rewards. I see. And you also mentioned how knowledge workers can benefit from competing in these online innovation competitions like Kaggle. So uh, what is considered knowledge work? Any type of activity where the product is a representation of something that you've learned or some expertise you have or just some element of your uh, understanding of a given area. Isn't every profession kind of considered a knowledge worker? Uh, Very broadly, So things like you're saying, design, engineering. However, we do have things that really just require physical space, I would say. That's a distinction. Got it. Okay, so can you briefly share what you discovered in your study specifically regarding the two parts, the online collaboration networks and the diversity of collaboration networks? What I wanted to do with this study was focus on just better understanding what collaboration looks like in an online competition space. A lot of the pre-existing research focuses on teams or the individuals. And knowing that people may belong to multiple teams throughout the course of their career competing, I wanted to take a broader view and have better understanding on how relationships that are built over time can end up influencing individual outcomes, which leads to like the second part. The diversity of collaboration experience measure that we developed is basically just trying to tease apart whether or not it's better to have a smaller fixed set of people that you work with regularly, or should you try to get a a vast array of experiences with many different people early on? And so what the findings show is that both of those are viable strategies, but they help in different ways. And so based on your findings, what are the implications for teams with remote collaboration? As we're like thinking about what does future work look like, what does it look like for 
the norm to be much more hybrid or remote style of working. We want to be mindful that it's still important to build and maintain relationships. And so as we're moving to a remote work, trying to be mindful that while we're all managing our individual careers, trying to make sure we're achieving our goals, how can we be intentional in the types of relationships we're building and how do we make sure we're spreading or allocating attention in ways that help us reach different performance goals? Right. You found this through researching online competition platforms, but do you think your findings will apply nicely to workplaces that are now remote or hybrid? So it depends. It's contingent upon the structure of the organization, the size of the organization, as well as the incentives. But I think that they can offer helpful insights into onboarding new people, helping people scaffold their early collaborations at work, and then also help them manage their careers in remote and decentralized work environments. Definitely. Um, Now moving on to Casey, Um, in your research, you use terms like empty shell and articulation work. Um, So can you explain what those two terms mean? Before diving into definitions, I can give a little bit of background um, to the study in terms of how I began studying telehealth um, to kind of help give some context to those terms. Definitely. Um, So one of the reasons I was interested in telehealth in this context of future of work is because I was really interested to understand the other side of the platform. That is the healthcare workers that are doing the work to make these platforms work. Um, And the term empty shell, we um, developed this concept in the study because we realized that many platforms have controls that want to direct or shape work to be done in a particular way. Mm -hmm. So Uber, for instance, the drivers are prompted by the app in terms of which rider to pick up and where to go to make that pickup. But in our study, we recognize that there are these different platform controls that did kind of prompt the therapists that we studied on the telehealth platforms that shape how their work should be done. But largely, there were a lack of controls um, that kind of left it up to the therapists in terms Mm -hmm. of how they wanted to structure their work, and also a lack of different regulatory controls that therapists may have expected that they would be doing in face-to-face work offline that wasn't necessarily embedded in the features that they were working on the um, telehealth platforms that they were using online. So the empty shell kind of is this um, concept to kind of describe those lack of controls that are present on these platforms. And then in terms of articulation work, Mm -hmm. that's the work that kind of fills that empty shell. So what are the work practices and strategies that the therapists were doing to kind of make the rest of the platform actually work. And so can you briefly share what you found in your research in terms of empty shell and articulation work? We specifically examined direct-to-consumer platforms. So these are um, online therapy platforms that usually the end user or the client um, pays a subscription um, to be matched with the therapist's Um, They're open for kind of changing therapists if they wish. Mm -hmm. And all of the therapy interactions happen within that platform. So it's a very different model of online therapy versus when you might just be using Zoom or another HIPAA compliant video conferencing platform to connect with your therapist. 
So the two different types of articulation work strategies that we found, the one type that we called um, adversarial articulation work strategies. So those are kind of like the work strategies where the therapists were finding ways to work around those existing platform controls. So one of the examples um, would be when therapists felt they had to kind of counter the ways in which the platform structured their time, um, because many of these direct-to-consumer platforms are kind of marketed as you have a therapist in your pocket or you have 24-7 like on-demand therapy. Um, but the therapists wanted to kind of push back on that notion because they kind of described, well, I'm not available actually 24-7. Mm-hmm. Like I have set working hours. Okay, so I have to find ways to kind of work around the platform trying to force on me that I should be working all the time. Second strategy that we found um, were these extensive articulation work strategies. So simply put, that's kind of like the extra work that these therapists would do that is not necessarily required for them to stay and work on the platforms, but therapists really felt obligated to do this extra care work because they felt committed to what their profession beyond and above what the platform required. So sometimes this would come um, about with doing extra paperwork in terms of informed consent or getting contact information that maybe the platform didn't require, but therapists would kind of institute their own strategies to kind of get that information. What are the implications of therapists working around these platforms and doing articulation work? Doing some of the extensive articulation work, these therapists aren't getting compensated for it. Mm -hmm. And in our study, um, many therapists mentioned in terms of like the burnout. um, And as Marlon kind of mentioned earlier, in terms of as we think about knowledge work, um, I think that there's trade-offs in terms of how we think about scaling work that is largely a human endeavor and that we need humans to kind of drive that work and they have the expertise to bring to work on these platforms that's largely human to human connection. When I was reading Casey's work, to me it's almost like these platforms have gaps designed into them. And then in order to create real value, people have to come up with work practices to activate that. Mm. And so I like Casey's and her team's perspective on platforms are designed in specific ways. Mm -hmm. And one of those ways forces users to create the value for themselves. Right. What do you think, um, Casey? So I think in terms of as we think about shifting a lot of work to online, Mm -hmm. that recognizing, you know, what are the hybrid arrangements that could work? that still allow people to kind of utilize those offline resources that are sometimes missing and largely sometimes the collaboration that just is more uh, fluid and easily happens offline as opposed to um, online where sometimes that information can be siloed. If we were to apply both of your findings to the workplace right now, what would that workplace look like? Anyone doing technical work uh, early in their careers and Perhaps it's a remote, make intentional efforts to build relationships, not just meet, but like build working relationships with as many of your colleagues as you have capacity for and actually do the work. And then when you have that as a foundation, you can be much more strategic in how you manage your collaborations moving forward. 
which helps you be more productive moving forward. You guys both published your studies in the same Journal for Communication Scholarship. Um, so why is communication scholarship important for the discussion around the future of work and technology? Casey? When we're talking about technology and work, sometimes we kind of forget that these are also larger like human enterprises, that technology is not just an object that, you know, is non-human and it kind of exists on its own, that In order to kind of put that technology into practice and the people designing these technologies are all done by humans and work itself is a human communicative enterprise. So communication scholarship, being able to really center the social behavior that's happening at the core of this is really um, important. Oh yeah, definitely. I feel like we need to start to learn how to coexist with technology and how to embrace it rather than work against it. Casey, when you were a communication management student here at Annenberg, did your studies or time at USC um, impact your journey in this field of communication scholarship? Definitely. At times, sometimes academic research can feel sometimes like aloof and kind of pull you away from like being on the ground. Um, But my time at Annenberg in the communication management program um, was kind of really helpful and kind of grounding me in terms of um, what communication scholarship can look like across different industries, as well Mm -hmm. as a global context as well. Marlon, how has being a faculty here impact your research? The students that I teach in Annenberg, they just tend to have an interest in cultural production and cultural industries like, you know, fashion and art and marketing, all kinds of things and music. And that's not me at all. And so being able to be exposed to people who think that way helped inform my work. I've been more inclusive, I would say, of figuring out opportunity areas to make the research interesting to as many of my students as possible. And so, you know, being able to bring up examples in class and being able to connect that to students who, in very real ways, don't care at all about what I'm studying, (laughs) but helping make them see the value in that has been a great experience, honestly. Yeah, definitely. After reading your research, very relevant to my life now. Thank you guys so much for joining me on the podcast today and discussing your research with me. Yeah, thank you for having us. Happy to do it.